Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello and welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro, where I'm sitting with the Maestro in the music room and we've got sunlight streaming through and it's a beautiful day and it's a perfect day for talking about the subject, which is French Impressionism. Yeah. Now, of course, when I say that, I immediately think of art, but you think exactly. of music. Look, I'm not an art expert. You are. And so I'm thinking of Cézanne and Renoir. Yes. And there are lots and of Pissarro others. And Pissarro and Monet and people like this. And Impressionism being that they didn't paint like a photographic reproduction of what the tree looked like, for instance, the tree full of apples. But somehow with their paint, they gave the impression of a tree full of apples. When you examine the canvas, you see the blodges of paint close up. You think, what can this be? Step back a little bit. And of course, it's dappled sunlight on the water or tree bearing a load of red apples or whatever. And the beauty, the skill of representing something by not being completely accurate. So it's an interpretation. Is that the same with the music? But there's more, isn't there? The lines are blurred. Mm. And isn't it that... Impressionism is not about lines and contours. It's about a sort of rose-tinted version. A representation or, in some way. Yes, and there's something too about the brush strokes that I read, which were not so exacting. Mm. Do you remember that film we watched on the life story of Turner? Mm. And there was an episode when he was in a gallery and looking at a picture and he suddenly stopped his conversation and picked up some red paint and just dab, dabbled with the end of the brush, just dabbled. And then, of course, you, it, well, it just looked like a blob. But then as you came away, it was a boy. Do you remember yes. that? Yes, I do. There was a period at the end of the... 19th century, when some French composers had the label attached to them that they too were impressionistic. And that would be primarily Debussy and then Ravel. Debussy was born in 1862 mm. when Camille Sanson was the king of French academia and music, the most senior composer that everyone looked up to. He was called the Beethoven of his age. And that was backward looking. And in certain ways in Russia, this was happening as well with Glazunov, the great monster king, emperor of music, the arbiter of what music should be and shouldn't be. And of course, it was Glazunov who was reportedly drunk when he conducted Rachmaninoff's first symphony. And it was such a failure, yeah. and all the critics came out, and Glazunov obviously thought it was rubbish. So this was a time when there were kings, and in England there was Charles Villiers Stanford, who was the professor of music at the Academy, and these were not 
in any way modernists or innovators. And then along comes Debussy. Now, Debussy is an extraordinary composer in that he immediately disdained the German concept of structure and form and what constituted a chord and what chord you could go to from one chord to the other. He seemed to believe in creating moods and impressions. And the way he did that is quite extraordinary. And so what I just want to draw attention to at the moment is a work that he wrote, I think it was premiered around about 1910, something like that. L'après-midi d'un which... Was it written for a ballet? I think it was danced as a ballet. Yeah. But it's now done, and it may still be danced as a ballet, because it creates almost a picture of a fawn in all its beautiful, innocent, youthful loveliness. In a forest with dappled sunlight and... Well, I suppose, but the music doesn't seem to talk about a forest. It no, seems then, to talk but... about an Arcadian grove. Do you remember, like the one we saw on the walk to Rome? Yeah. Do you remember when we suddenly descended into a little valley and there was the most perfect field or pasture <gasps> surrounded by gentle woods? And it just seemed so benign. Now, this piece, I think, really sums up what Debussy was doing and how he was doing it. So I'm just going to play a little bit of the opening. Those two chords are beautiful in themselves. And he was the first composer to dare simply to juxtapose one chord with another. Now, it opens that lovely, well, is it a melody? I don't think you can call it a melody. It's a kind of figuration. It's played by a very low flute. And the low flute in the lower octave has a sensual quality, rather languid. And then those two chords, they're not resolving anything. They're simply introducing you into a world where you must just imagine. And the other thing about this, which is absolutely fascinating, this opening melody. Now that is a tritone. And that, those two notes have completely opposite harmonic sequences. So that used to be called the devil's interval before. Do you remember Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre? Thank you. 
It's tritones. And what the tritone does is completely break normal harmonic thinking. It suggests that it's going to be resolved. So... You'd think... And then it's a nice interval. You'd think. But the trick of it is to, is to introduce you to a world where the chords will move around for their own beauty. And the other thing, of course, is the colour. So a low flute and then a very soft wind chord and a French horn then plays. And on that change of chord... He's got a tenth in the bass, which is very luscious. It's rich. You always liked tenths, didn't you? I'm afraid I did. So in those opening bars, Debussy uses an interval which Wagner also used at the beginning of a very famous opera. That's got a tritone in it. I'll show you how. That's the tritone. And... Now when Is that Debussy, Tristan? That's Tristan. Tristan now, when Debussy went to see Tristan for the first time, he came out thinking it was the best piece of music he could have ever imagined. thought it was extraordinary. Now, that was when he was quite young, but you can see the connection with the tritone. It's all about stopping you thinking that this will be a formalised harmonic world, as you would expect from someone like Mozart and Saint-Saëns, to be fair and Brahms, and he was going to simply enjoy the juxtapositions of colours and chords, falling in love with chords. And when you hear a great jazz pianist play, they are using chords for purely coloristic effect. And the joy of it was keeping some fundamental place to come home to. And in this particular piece, Debussy does give the game away because of... You can feel E major. Now, unusually for him, he suggests a key at the beginning and then he ends the piece in the same key. And I can play you the very end and you'll hear how it works. Try tones again. So 
what are we saying here, really? That Debussy was using colour and the colour of chords to suggest that this is a world where you just surrender to the beauties of sound in all its richness. Did this also instruct the orchestration? Did it infect that yes, enormously? Yes, yes, Debussy was one of the first to really begin to experiment with pure orchestral colour. And don't forget, we've talked about this before, Richard Strauss, of course, was a master at orchestral colour. But for Debussy, an orchestral colour was something in itself of great importance. He wanted everybody to fall in love with the pure sound. And he seemed also to want to paint pictures because I'm reminded of a very famous work of Debussy's La Mer, Mm. which just evokes the sea, which is what mm-hmm. he wanted it to, La Mer meaning the sea. And it's, it's an astonishing piece because he's, he's painting with music a picture of the sea, a feeling of being uh, right. with a wide grey sky and the great rushing and water. Th- here's another interesting connection. Because we went to see Berta Morisot's Morisot, yes. exhibition, the most wonderful female artist. Yes. Um, and she was almost the mother of, of Impressionism. She had sketchy lines and things, but she was greatly influenced by the traditionalists. She adored their work, but she had, liked this freer form. I think free seems to be a word that could be attached to this Impressionism. Yes, and it, I think I read that day that it had something to do with these artists wanting to paint in the open air yeah, rather than in the studio. And so it's quite interesting that Debussy, La Prémie d'Infone, La Mer, which has three movements describing the sea in three different ways, very stormy last movement. And of course, the tritone. There's another wonderful collection of three pieces called Nocturnes, where he describes clouds and fete, which is a festival. And then the last one is sirene, sirens. So you can almost imagine these things pictorially, but it isn't a representation for the eye. It's a representation for the ear and for the imagination to take over. You see, in order for these composers to begin to think this way, and I should say that both he and Maurice Ravel, who was a younger man, with similar ideas about colour, they despised the label Impressionism. And Debussy, I think, wrote at one point that he thought it was execrable that he could be compared to someone like Turner because a critic had made a comparison. Two different worlds. One's oral and you must imagine, whereas the other is visual and you sort of dive into a painting, don't you? Yeah. 
And you chase the artist's imagination. I want to go back to tritones. Do you mean some giant like Beethoven never used tritones? No, 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 he hadn't. No, he hadn't. No. I don't know why he used well, everything else. Well, because his entire audience would have thought that he'd... Lost his mind. Mm-hmm. They'd yeah. thought he'd made a mistake, in fact. Yeah. How was this music greeted when it first came out, L'après Midi d'Amphoun? These were innovators, he and Ravel, and, and much later, of course, your great hero, Boulez, yeah. another Frenchman. And his work is phenomenal, seems to have no rules at all. What would well, I know? I think the fact that Debussy's music is so beautiful, it doesn't jar on the ear. Mm. He was more interested in modes as well and Far Eastern music. Mm. So one of the melodies in, oh, La Premidi, when it has a long, gorgeous legato melody, it's very interesting. And this is the melody. Now, that is pentatonic. And by pentatonic, I mean it's the five black notes. These are they. And so that melody is based on only those, those five notes, which, of course, is, is a very far eastern mode, use of notes. You don't use any others. You'd simply... And so we'd say that sounds Chinese, wouldn't we? We'd say that. Absolutely. Mm. So Debussy wasn't, wasn't frightening his audiences, but he was using the language of music from the ages. He wasn't necessarily breaking rules. He seduced his audiences. He also wrote numerous piano pieces. Well, you know, for example. Claire de Lune. That was stunning, but you see, you, it's called, it's titled Moonlight. It isn't called Etude Number Something. It's titled Moonlight, Claire de Lune. And so already our mind is open to that yes. stillness. If he'd called it a quiet library, maybe we'd have <laughs> looked at it in a different way and thought, hmm, that looks just like shelves of books. Instead of which, I see moonlight on lawns and soft trees and. Curtains, maybe billowing in a dark room. Yes, and, and and some of his fast music in La Mer and Fête in Nocturnes, the second movement. Some of his fast music is incredibly exhilarating too. But at the root of it was a real understanding of how harmony works. So the climax of the second movement in Fête from the Nocturnes, the climax. I can play you the chords he uses. Now, you, you play those chords and you think, well, where did he get that from? But it's not frightening. It feels rich.
Well, to a modern ear, it, it feels pretty... Pretty ordinary and and familiar. Exactly. Exactly. We'd love to hear from you, our lovely listeners. So if you've got questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. Thank you. Tell me about Ravel. Well, Ravel was 15 years younger. Mm. Would they have met? Yes. Oh, yes. They all knew each other. Yes, yes, yes. And just jumping back a bit, would Debussy have met Wagner? And Richard Strauss and people like, did they know each other, all these great musicians? Well, some deliberately didn't meet each other, like Wagner and Verdi. But I mean, to be perfectly honest, you know, one was the king of Italy and the other was the king of Germany. And Now the twain shall meet. Well, and their styles. They, mm. they were, Verdi was the king of Italian music and Wagner certainly regarded himself as the emperor of German music. And do you think this French music, this new impressionistic French music, was admired by Germany and Italy? Would they have, or would they have thought it was a bit infradig? There isn't really any sign in the earlier years, but when you look at the chronology that L'Apremidi was premiered, followed by Stravinsky's... Right of Spring? Um, no, no. no, no that, that, well, that Right of Spring was premiered three or four years later. So it was the Firebird and Petrushka. Now, Stravinsky knew all about colour, but he, his intent was different. Debussy's intent was to... Uh, seduce and to charm bewitch. the ear, mm. bewitch the ear. And Stravinsky's was, in a lot of ways, to shock yeah. and to challenge. When Ravel wrote Daphnis and Chloe, yeah. what was he thinking of then? What was his intention then? It wasn't it's quite true. interesting that neither Ravel nor Debussy wrote symphonies. They didn't? No, no. They they had turned their back on traditional German school form, mm. which was fundamentally about development of a theme into a structure of three or four movements. They were more structurally interested. Debussy's music has many different forms. It's organic. You always feel satisfied with his journey, but you're not able to say, ah, yes, well, that's the first theme, this is the second theme, and then we bring back the first theme and develop that a little bit. Then we repeat the second theme and finish off and everybody's satisfied. He felt free about it. Now, Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe is a ballet. So there's a very distinct story which follows the Greek myth. And the point about Daphnis and Chloe is that he uses everything that Debussy had introduced, chords, the sensuality of chords and the use of colour, but turns it into a ballet, which is a kind of a discourse between characters. So at certain points, he makes you feel that you can almost see the gestures a choreographer might wish to make. But there are also these fantastic landscapes that he paints. Yeah. So the opening of Daphnis and Chloe is daybreak.
And the way that Ravel introduces instrument after instrument after instrument after instrument, and the chord gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then the wordless chorus chimes in as the sun comes over the horizon. This again is the perfection of Impressionism. Ravel was also interested in neoclassicism, which was using some of the forms of previous times. So Le Tombeau de Couperin, which is a homage to Couperin, the French composer of, what, the 17th century, he constructs movements based on dances, Mm. ancient dances. He wasn't quite as, shall we say, critical of the German school of forms, the classical form. I want to move swiftly, Maestro, because we we go into these heavenly reveries. Is I was always rather afraid of Pierre Boulez's music because it seemed uh, quite why? scary. Well, it just seems. Had so you heard sc- much? No, I hadn't. And then you played me a burst of it the other day. I did, and I was completely enchanted. I thought it was fabulous. Well, I don't think dear Pierre Boulez would would very much like me for shining a light, perhaps, on the way that his music affects me. Boulez was born in, in 1925, and he only quite recently died. Mm. You played for him, didn't you? I did. I did. Please I, tell me the story of Mr. Young, young little Stephen Barlow playing for Pierre Boulez. Well, my first season with the National Youth Orchestra was in 1970. So I would have been 16, I think, mm. or 15, and I was about to be 16. And he'd been engaged by Ivy Dixon, who ran the National Youth Orchestra, to conduct the Rite of Spring. And as a newbie... In the percussion section, I played the tambourine. <laughs> it's a vast percussion section, including all sorts of instruments like the rapiguero, you know, a gourd which you scrape. Mm. And it had everything else in it, gongs, tam-tams, a, a large number of timpani. It, it's a wonderful piece. And the tambourine only played, I think, for about eight bars. And it just played chink. Chink, chink, in one of the later movements. And that's all I did. But I I remember the first time I played it, I thought, yeah, this is easy. Boulez didn't really look around the orchestra much, but his eyes were always looking at someone. And (laughs) immediately I started, I thought, yeah, yeah, that's the rhythm. I'm absolutely perfect. Don't need to worry too much. And when I turned around to look at him again, he was staring at me. And I realized 
that I had chosen a tempo that was perhaps just very slightly different from the one that he was conducting. So I'd been overconfident. I should have stuck to him like glue, and I did the next time when he came back, and I was timpanist. And he only looked at me once then, when I played two notes to begin the last movement of Bartok, music for strings, percussion, and celeste. Dong, dong. And I thought, that's okay. Up came his head, and he <laughs> looked straight at me, and I thought, oh, God, why did I think that? The C-sharp was very slightly out of tune. He didn't miss anything. He was a formidable musician. You love him so deeply, but did he not ever give you a smiley look or be kind to the National Youth Orchestra? How have you retained this devotion? He was miraculous. He was miraculous. But you have nothing but shame stitched to the memory of being... No, 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 no. For the rest of the time, every time I played for him, he did not look at me anymore. That's because you're safe Because that's what you did when you played for Boulez. Mm. You were absolutely glued to every glance, he could hear every note. Mm. He could pick out a second flute in the middle of a loud forte and rather worryingly say, play that. I'm not going to name who it was. (laughs) He knows. He would just say, play that second bar after B in his lovely French accent because he'd heard that it wasn't quite right. So we worshipped Boulez Mm. as a conductor. And I really only got to know his music when a group of us got permission to go and listen to him rehearsing at the BBC, made a veil. He was rehearsing his new piece called Pli Selon Pli, which I have the scores. They are freakishly complicated, but he conducted them so clearly, everybody understood exactly where they were supposed to be. And for those of you that are inclined, Part of the duty of a conductor in Plis Salon Plis at one point is to conduct 5-4 in one hand and 4-4 in the same time with the right. So that's four beats in the time of five beats and your right hand is showing the four beats and your left hand is showing the five. The thing about his music is the sheer beauty of the sound and sometimes brutality. He was a real teacher and thinker. So he wasn't an emotional man. And his music isn't about emotions. They're about ideas. Now, when you listen to it, you realize that there is emotion in the music, but it is not overt. So for me, there's always been this feeling of the plain beauty 
of the sonorities, the orchestrations, the sound the instruments make, and the charm as well as the mathematical complexities of his, of his music. Now, the piece I played to you is one that I would recommend everyone gives a go. And it's the first of four pieces called Notation. That's um, quite a dull name, isn't it? Yes, Notations. Yes. Come, come, come on, come on, Boulez. We could have come. You could have given us moonlight or sunlight or something, given a hint of something. Revelry. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> so something, not just Notations, because that sounds like a secretary. <laughs> And the, having heard the work, it, that's very mis- misleading too, because it's not notations at all. I'm sure it means a great deal. You know, should it I tell you something? I, I, should I tell you what happened? He had this in a pile of stuff, and he had it. He had a whole stuff. He'd written all the music out. He'd because he, in those days you didn't have people who filled in for you. He would have written the whole score. He'd have done it himself, and it was sitting there waiting for a title, and it was ready <laughs> to be published because they were publishing music by this time. It didn't have to be copied out by hand, and somebody his secretary. His secretary crept in and went, oh, my God, Boulos wants this done. He's such a frightening man. I'll take it straight off the publisher. The publisher said, but, but what's it gold? And she said, I, oh, God, I daren't second guess him. I'll call it notations. Yeah, he no. didn't think of that ghastly no, dull word. No, what wonderful Boulez, wonderful Boulez, didn't want to give any artificial meaning to to his music. He wanted it to be appreciated clean and clear. So his other titles are Le Marteau Sans Maître. And Marteau is a hammer, I think, isn't it? Could be, yeah. The hammer without a master. There's another one called Éclat Multiple. Multiple bangs. Yes! <laughs> oh, look, honestly, and there's Boulez, another no, piece, look, I one, another wonderful piece. piece called yeah. Dérive. But... One should not, under any circumstances, be put off. His music is intensely exciting, intensely imaginative, and he does draw you into a world where you can feel as if you're gazing at spangles of stars. Just to play us out for the end of this lovely Mm -hmm. episode about Impressionism, Debussy, Ravel, and, of course, Boulez, can we go out with the beautifully titled Notation? Please, I'm so pleased you said that, because these four pieces were originally written for piano. Now, you'll uh, you'll chuckle again in your way, but they were 12 pieces, each lasting, I think, 12 seconds. I think. And the orchestral version that he did later on in his life, he was always tinkering with his works which some people feel is why he didn't compose a vast amount. And he then orchestrated four of them, and I think also a fifth later. But the four are part of a group called Notation, and they are expanded versions of the piano pieces. So more than seconds. Yes, what, what, 36 seconds? Four hours? No, no. two minutes, four minutes. minutes, six minutes. They differ in length. But the first one is... Pure magic. You're drawn into a world um, where every sound seems really delicate and there's drama in it too. So the dynamics go up and down, soft, loud, soft, soft, Mm. soft, loud. It's the most enthralling piece. Well, let's listen to it now. Thank you. 
been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton, and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Prelude à la prime d'un faune. Written by Claude Debussy. Performed by the Tbilisi Symphony Orchestra. The record label was X5 Music Group. Dance Macabre by Camille Sanson. Performed by the Sofia Philharmonic Orchestra. Conducted by Emil Tabakov. The record label was Balkanton. Tristan and Isolde. Act 1. Written by Richard Wagner. Performed by Antonia Papanu and the orchestra of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden. The record label was EMI Records. La Mer. Third Movement. Dialogue du Vent et du La Mer. Written by Claude Debussy. Performed by the ORF Symphony Orchestra and Milan Harvard. The record label was SLG. Nocturnes. Fête. Written by Claude Debussy. Performed by the BRT Philharmonic Chorus and the Belgian Radio and Television Philharmonic Orchestra. Conducted by Alexander Rabari. The record label was Naxos. Daphnis et Chloe. Part 1. Introduction. Written by Maurice Ravel. Performed by MDR Leipzig Radio Choir and Lyon National Orchestra. Conducted by June Markle. The record label was Naxos. Le Tombeau de Coupron. Written by Maurice Ravel. Performed by François-Jean Thiolet. The record label was Naxos. The Rite of Spring, Part 2, The Sacrifice. Written by Igor Stravinsky. Performed by London Symphony Orchestra. Conducted by Robert Kraft. The publisher was Hawks and Son. The record label was Naxos. Plie selon plie, fold according to fold. Written by Pierre Boulez. Performed by Helena Lukomska, Paul Stingel, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, Hugo Dalton and Maria Bergman. Conducted by Pierre Boulez. The publisher was Universal Edition, London Limited. The record label was Sony BMG Music Entertainment. Notations. 1. Written by Pierre Boulez. Performed by Southwest German Radio Symphony Orchestra, Baden-Baden. And conducted by Michael Gillen. The record label was SWR Classic.